In the future, roving bands of comic book podcasts will savage the wasteland, once known as the internet. One podcast, the Grawlix Podcast, may not be the biggest, may not be the funniest, may not be the most well-spoken. Wait, what was my point again? Oh yes, the Grawlix Podcast. Listen to it at GrawlixPodcast.com. That's G-R-A-W-L-I-X Podcast.com. Hi, this is Jim Crutt, the helicopter zombie from George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead, and you're listening to Moose's Monster Mash. episode of Moose's Monster Mash, the show that knows to be careful who you ask for a little off the top. Please welcome, from down in the dead, the helicopter zombie himself, Mr. Jim Crutt. Well, howdy there. <laughs> I like your introduction. <laughs> I try to tailor it to the uh, guest, have a little bit of fun with it. Well, good. I don't like to be rubber stamped out. You know, there's there should only be one of everything and everybody, right? <laughs> right. So how you doing? How's uh, life treating you right now? You mean like what it looks like inside a house? <laughs> Actually, does your house look different than everybody else's right now? I don't know. It might be a little cleaner than it was when a few few weeks ago or a couple months ago when we got started on all this. But uh, we do have a lot more going on with the garden. Plants are in. And unfortunately, a week or so ago, we had a, two nights of freeze and it killed all the tomatoes and peppers. So. I had to replant those this week, and I, I do like the garden. I like to spend some time there. Yeah, I haven't been able to start my garden yet. Nebraska weather's been a little screwy. I think weather everywhere sort of has been that way. Uh, I, every every time uh, winter is sort of over and we get a couple of nice sunny days, I think, man, this is it. This is the beginning of summer. It's time to stir up the raised beds and clean things out and put some plants in and everything starts coming up for about a week or two and then bam we get the hammer of mother nature and she reminds us we're not in charge yeah we're only we're only, we're only part-time players on this planet say i haven't been able to plant corn in years because just the timing's been miserable oh. we could talk farming all day but i'm not sure people want to listen to us <laughs> talk farming <laughs> it depends if you're going to go under the earth sometime you better appreciate it yeah no i no we're good we're good appreciate the earth you're going to go under it appreciate what comes out of it Sure, absolutely. Someday we'll all be part of the soil, right? You know, the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out. I think it was uh, Chief Plentycu who said, uh, the ground on which we stand is sacred ground. It is the dust and blood of our ancestors. I would try to keep that in mind and, you know, kind of respect nature, respect uh, the air, the water, the land, and other people. But let's talk about zombies. What do you say? I, I'm down. Hey, I, I could. It's your show. I'm here for the ride. Uh, oh, come. Well, I know what I know. What would you like to know that I know? <laughs> Do you always want to be an actor, or was it just something? Did you just decide one day that there was an open casting call and say, "No, nah, I'll give it a shot"? I, I don't know if you could call this the start of it all, but when I was in elementary school, we had a school play, and it was about history, and I was chosen to be Abraham Lincoln. Because I was tall, taller than most of the other kids in the class. I'm still, I'm six four. Not that I was at an elementary school, but uh, you know they put a little beard on me with rub some coal on it, and uh, I was Abraham Lincoln, and I was able to memorize the Gettysburg Address, and that was pretty cool. And uh, from there in high school, I, I started in the, uh, the junior class plays and wrote a play for um, senior class. And then when I got to college, I actually, it was for journalism and communications. And that's when I got involved with another theater group. I had done a little community theater too, but in college, that's where I ran into Tom Savini, um, who did all the makeup and effects for Dawn of the Dead. And a few of the other folks that I later became lifelong friends with, who also worked in theater and acting in, uh, in film and uh, a lot of work behind the scenes. 
Uh, you know, folks like Nick Tallow and, uh, and and Bill Royston, who founded the Pittsburgh Laboratory Theater that I worked with for about four years. So I did a lot of acting. And uh, so in terms of when I got started, how I got started, I kind of fell into it because I was typecast as Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> I fell into it because I was tall and they needed a tall guy. You know, it worked against me for another one. Um, we had done a play with Gettysburg Stage. And it was about the Triangle Factory Fire. And it was on the 100th anniversary date of the Triangle Factory Fire in New York. And it was a pretty horrible fire. And we performed it, actually, at the Gettysburg Fire Company. Now, you may not know this, but uh, probably 20 miles away is the National Firefighters Training Center. And so we had a number of people who came up from there who wanted to see the play and a bit of history. But one of the other people there cast... Uh, uh, you know, the, one of the people that I was in the cast with had somebody who come up, came up to see him in the play and then also saw me. When he saw me, he said, hey, I like the look. It would be a good look for a judge role that I have on Lifetime TV. And I said, huh, just let me at it. So I went down to uh, uh, Frederick, Maryland. And we did a one-day shoot in the courthouse there, and it was on Lifetime TV. And I thought, well, that was pretty cool. I got kind of typecast. He said, well, I really liked what you did, and we're going to you know, make sure that if we have some other work in the area, we'll, we'll contact you. So I got a call not too long after that. Uh, I think it was the men who, who built America, the men who made America. And they said, well, we heard good things about you, and we, we were interested in talking to you a little bit. And they were they were totally fine. And, and they said, and how tall are you? And I said, six, four. And they said, oh, that's not going to work for us. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, sometimes it works for you and sometimes it works against you. And if you're an actor, one of the hardest things to do is, is to learn to face rejection. Because when a director or producer is looking for somebody for a role, they're looking for somebody that they already have in mind. It may not be the exact person, but it might be a particular look. It might be a particular body shape or expression or energy level or a certain amount of being laid back or just being, you know, really muscular and aggressive, whatever it could be. That's what's already in their mind. If you don't fit it, don't feel badly. Somebody else has another role somewhere that's going to be just who you are and you can be. You know, the best you can be in that other role. But uh, the hardest thing for actors, I think, is to get used to rejection because you can you can go out for a lot of auditions and find out that you're just not the person they were looking for. And sometimes you'll look at the person that they chose and they'll say, well, how come I picked him? <laughs> you can't get upset about any of that stuff. You just got to roll with it. That's that's just part of the business. No, I agree. Uh, the limited experience I have with acting in high school and a little bit afterwards actually helped form my uh, coping with rejection. You know, because you're right. When a director looks at a script and the character, like descriptions, he'll look at it and instantly he gets a picture in his mind as to, okay, this is what I see. If you don't fit that picture, you're done. I mean, you're, you're pretty much dead on arrival when you audition. That's that's totally correct. That's totally correct. So it kind of helped me adopt the mantra in life that to pretty much try anything with anyone, the worst they can tell you is no. It never hurts to ask. Exactly. You know, just keep those things. They're simple things to say, but you sometimes, you know, it, it's hard on the psyche to... Uh, to have people say, no, I don't want you, don't need you, you know, come back another time or something, uh, maybe another another film or whatever. It, it can be hard on a body to do that. So you have to have a pretty good self you know, sense of self-worth. And uh, what you were saying about a director has somebody in mind. The writer does, too, typically when they have uh, characters that they're writing or developing. They might base those characters on somebody that they know personally. It could be a friend or it could be an actor that they've already seen on screen and they like the way they're doing things. So bingo, there you go. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the, the series of books that uh, Bernard Cornwell wrote, uh, 
One was a whole series on Richard Sharp, like uh, Sharp's Gold and so forth. And he also has the, uh, it's on Netflix now, The Last Kingdom, that whole series. When he was writing the Sharp series, it was about a British soldier during the Napoleonic era. And he wrote this first few books, and people liked the book so much, they said, well, I really, really ought to turn these into videos. So Sean Bean was cast in the role of Richard Sharp for that series. And when Bernard Cornwell, is my understanding, saw Sean Bean in that role doing Richard Sharp, he wrote the rest of the series based on the characters, the characteristics that Sean Bean brought to that role. So, you know, he really, you know, had hit hit it so perfectly that Sean Bean did that the author himself said that is Richard Sharp. And the, the situations he put him in, the way he reacted and responded in terms of the scripts is based on the way Sean Bean performed the character. He got to survive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he got to do other work, yeah. Before meeting Tom Savini, were you a horror fan growing up? I was a huge horror film fan growing up. Uh, the scariest movie I ever saw when I was a kid was The Thing from Outer Space, and James Arness says the monster in it, and Man, that just burned itself into my memory. I'll tell you, when I saw that as a kid, we had uh, a local theater in the town I grew up in, in South in, in Central Pennsylvania. And I lived about, what, six blocks from the movie theater. It wasn't a big town. So I went in, and I, I knew it was going to be a good horror movie. So I, I went in, and I was a kid, and I sat down very close to the front row. I wanted the total immersion experience. And when that movie came on, there, there, it was like a 7.30 show and a 9.30 show, something like that. I was so absorbed. I was so terrified. When I walked out of the theater, I was walking out backward because I did not turn my back on the screen. And as I got close to the back row of the theater, I noticed that there was um, a family with one of my best friends and they lived right across the street from me. And I thought, oh, man, I'm going to sit here with you guys for a while because I'm going home with you. And they said, <laughs> oh, no, we, we just got here for the second show. We haven't seen it yet. I said, oh, no. <laughs> so I, I worked my way outside of the theater. And I was kind of okay with the bright lights of the marquee and so forth. I got around the corner. And suddenly it wasn't as bright. And it was also close to 930 at night. And I started walking down the street, and after about a block of that nonsense, I went right down the middle of the road, running all the way home. That's the impact that that movie had on me. And when I got home, I mean, I was terrified to go in the house. <laughs> that, to me, was quite an impact for a horror movie. And I thought, this is something that people have made. It's a product, and people were actors and directors, and I was fascinated. Now, I'd always loved the universal monsters, too. You know, Frankenstein, Dracula, the mummy, Wolfman. Uh, those were characters that I had model kits of. I would, you know, see any of the sequels, even if it was a Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein sort of thing. I would go see it just because I was so, so much a part of that mystery, that element, that combination of fun and evil that they were creating with the movies. So, yeah, in a long answer to your short question, uh, Paul, we uh, we have our experiences, which sometimes we never forget. And I think that was one, certainly one of the drivers for me. So, yeah, the movie that hooked me was uh, Nosferatu. Yes. Yes. And watching it now, the movie is not that scary. But as a kid, it plays so much on your innate fear of the dark that you get that, like, hand coming out of the shadows. And, yes. You know, Great use of that, too. With, with the light play and everything. And it was just so utterly creepy. It wasn't over the top. It wasn't, you know, it was just simple and practical. Looking back, I think that's why it hit as hard as it did. Because as a kid, most kids are afraid of the dark so to see mm -hmm. to see a movie where you're not sure what's lurking in the shadows a silent movie to boot yes you know you're just like oh crap that movie hooked me and from then on it was a rabbit hole of horror <laughs>
You know, I, I've been asked at, at different uh, conventions and shows uh, to give a little talk or a panel. And you can talk about Dawn of the Dead a lot, but I, I, I did some research and I would do occasionally a talk about the history of zombies in cinema. And so I, f- I researched a little further back and I said, you know, does anybody know what the first horror film is or, or was? And people said, oh, it might have been, uh, you know, 1920s, 1930s. And I said, well, actually, there was about a 22nd film in France of a train pulling into the to a station. How scary can that be? Well, people were not used to movies. When they saw that locomotive coming at them, people got up out of their seats and ran to the back of the theater. That, to me, was that same kind of impact. That was a horror movie. But it kind of brings up the question of what a horror movie is. If you look at it that way, what is a horror movie? You go into a movie and you sit down in the dark, as you say. And the only thing that you focus on is what's on the screen, the light. And that light brings an image to you that is somehow terrifying. And that, whether it's visually or psychologically, however it affects you, like in the movie The Exorcist, in part of the soundtrack, they had, uh, they embedded the sound of, of bees, angry bees. Now, people don't say, boy, remember that scene in The Exorcist where they had the, the, the angry bees and the sound? No, it was subtle. It was built in. But people had this innate sense of fear when they would hear a bee. And they don't have to be allergic to a bee sting. They're just, you know, aware. They're alert. They're on edge. And so the director used that element, brought it in very subtly, you know, to heighten the the terror impact and the suspense. Wow. Cool, Cool stuff. Cool stuff. Definitely like to research your uh, horror stuff. That's well, it's it's fascinating, and you kind of wonder, in, in in some ways, what makes people afraid. And I think, in terms of film and in stage, people have explored that topic for for years. I mean, li- literally hundreds of years in terms of, of theater and stage, because you have to connect with people. If you don't have an emotional or connection or a response among the audience, you, you've kind of lost them and they may or may not come back. People go because for them to see something on stage that might appear dangerous, mystical, unknown, that's a thrill. And if they can do that safely from the seat in the theater, whether it's a movie theater or a stage performance, if they can sit in their seat and watch people go through this dangerous situation or where they are put in a quandary where they're threatened by an outside force or whatever it may be or another person on stage and everybody i think has this feeling gee if that were me how would i handle that you know on the face of it it's just entertainment oh these two guys are having a sword fight that's kind of neat i wonder if they're really going to stab each other geez wow but psychologically you're sitting back saying well he's got well I wonder if I could do that. Huh. What if, if I got in a real situation like that? Maybe I ought to, maybe I ought to take up some sword fighting just in case I get into, you know, a situation where I'm walking down the street and I'm, uh, you know, somebody wants to have a sword fight with me. <laughs> you know, that would explain the rise in the, uh, preparation for the zombie apocalypse. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Besides, you can sell a lot of merchandise if you're, you know, having people prep for something like that merchandising yeah yeah it's all about it's all about merchandising marketing marketing (laughs) eventually you moved over to the position of producer i I am bouncing around here a little bit no that's fine that's fine i have midnight in the mortuary cut you right here and the maladjusted Mm-hmm. I guess the big question is, what's the uh, biggest difference from being on the screen taking the notes to being behind the camera giving the notes you're taking, I guess? Well, I think, first of all, the definition, mostly uh, in independent films for a producer or a producer credit, is somebody who would financially support the film that's being made. And in each of those cases, I, I believed in what the director was doing. And uh, I felt, you know, deeply enough about it to want to financially support to make the film happen. 
not all films, even those in Hollywood, are, are well funded. But uh, sometimes, in, and I, I hate to you know be the person criticizing Hollywood because it's formulaic and it, it's a repetition of the same thing. And now we're at Fast and Furious 12 or something. Oh, don't worry. Everybody criticizes Hollywood. You're fine. <laughs> oh, well, okay. So I'm not alone. But where do you find then the uh, the beginnings of new films and new ideas? And new new ways of looking at film, uh, bringing the audience into things in a different way. And in my mind, it's independent filmmakers. Uh, now, you have to admit that there are a number of independent filmmakers who say, hey, I've got an old camera in the attic and I've got some friends and we'll. We'll dress up in some of mom's clothes and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll do, uh, this representation of a 13th century, uh, court battle or whatever it may be. That doesn't go too far, but I'm, but it's at the same time, it's still experience and somebody is actually trying to do something. If you, uh, I went to a film festival once with uh, Gary Ugarik, who, uh, I worked with. He was the director of Deadlands 2 and, and addressing all these people a lot of them were film filmmakers he said now the difference is a hundred people say they're going to make a movie and maybe 10 or 15 actually start doing it and out of that maybe five finish it that's those were the you know the percentages approximately that he said would actually see things through to the very end because it's difficult suddenly everybody's on set and uh and and they're all hungry and they want to go home (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so who's making food for him? You know, who's thinking about, uh, gee, it's going to rain. We need to change the lighting. We need to get inside. We, we, maybe we should shoot these other scenes now. There are so many elements to consider when you're making a movie. What about the transportation? Working with Joe Shelby, on, uh, of, uh, who was also one of the raiders in, in uh, Dawn of the Dead, he asked me to do a film with him in Pittsburgh called The Green Man. And... We we were doing this shoot, and I said, well, Joe, you know, how, how's it going? And he said, well, it, it's tough sometimes working with people who aren't trained actors. Sometimes they're very willing and energetic, but they're not always thinking all the way through. We were using, we had to do some interruptions in the shoot, and so we were using the one guy's car for a lot of the earlier shoots. And when the next scene he was to work on and he came in, it was a different car. And Joe said, well, well, where's the car that we were using in the movie for the first half of the movie? The guy said, ah, I sold that. Was was that important? <laughs> Continuity, man. Continuity. <laughs> so you have that, that sort of thing. What do you do? You know, you're halfway through it. Do you reshoot? And you say, oh, yeah. Or do you rewrite the script and say, yeah, I had to, I, you know, I, I uh, smashed that car up and I had to get a rental or something. You know, you can, you can make some adjustments as you need to but those sorts of it's things still new car so in terms of being a producer uh when i find people who are really truly dedicated to the art and the craft of making films and maybe it's not going to be a commercial success maybe it has a chance of that i'm not in it to do um, you know doubling my money or tripling my money whatever i put into it but if i can help them make a successful film I can feel good about, and I know the other people who are involved with it, and I feel really good about that because not everybody is out there trying to help independent filmmaking. And again, to me, that's where the new ideas come from, the energy is coming from, and a lot of new actors, directors, people are cutting their teeth on independent film. And man, it's there's such a wide range of stuff out there. Um, so. That's that's how I got into the producing role. A friend of mine and I have had this conversation numerous times about how movies today are a double-edged sword. Like, Hollywood seems to hedge its bets. As a viewer, we want new stories. But, nine times out of ten, we will go see the tried and true, a sure thing, before we spend money on, you know, that new idea or that new concept. Because we're... You know, we've managed to be trained to be weary of the unknown. And that's how we've ended up with so many Fast and the Furiouses and, you know, so many franchise movies that at this point Hollywood's like, well, we can support these new stories or we can reboot, 
or continue a franchise. We know we'll make money. Sure, and, and the people funding the movies are there to make money. And I think that's that's one of the differences. They, they want to see it as success so they can get a return on their investment. It's a business. And sometimes that business drives maybe some of the movies in the wrong direction. Well, we got to cut back on this. Well, but that was supposed to be the big effect. Well, it's not in the budget now. We're just, we just cut that out. So you're, you're exactly right there. You know, there are a lot of other parallels. I used to do a lot of photography. I made, I used to make some, uh, some of my living doing photography. And one of the things I learned was, gee, if, uh, you have a, a town where you have a long-term photographer who's been doing it there for 30, 40 years, and you have this new guy, he's got these great ideas and he's got this, you know, kind of fancier camera and, uh, and he can do some really cool lighting and filters and all these other effects and, and the poses. And he's got some ideas for backgrounds, but when people, Let's say the school board says, well, we want to have somebody make the yearbook photos. Who are we going to hire? Are we going to hire the guy who's been here 40 years or this new guy we don't know anything about? We know this other guy can grind his stuff out. Yeah, it's not too exciting, but he can do it. New guy, I don't know. We've never worked with him. Who are they going to go with? Bam. So that's why you have that continuity of the, uh, I would say, the mundane. <laughs> yeah. So, looking through your credits list, you you seem to have carved out quite the niche in horror category. Well, when you're tall, you can get typecast, like for Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and uh, if you become involved in a horror film, like Dawn of the Dead, then you have people who are making other films, and they are fans of Dawn of the Dead also. And the film they're making is going to be a horror film. And wouldn't they love to have somebody from a previous horror film involved? So in some ways, that's how how I've been cast. In most cases, I really didn't have to do auditions. I, I did auditions for, uh, let's see, A Host of Sparrows. And I didn't really know that much about the the overall concept of the film. But I knew the director had made another film or two before that. And I just, and I liked some of the other ideas ideas that were going along with it. So when I was asked to read, the director was in the audience. That was it. The director and one other person, his assistant, I guess. And I was supposed to choose one of three characters that I was going to read for. And I chose this role of, uh, of a minister. I'm sorry, that wasn't uh, Host of Sparrows. That was, uh, that was an earlier one. But it was the same director. And I had, uh, I read this role of a priest. And when I was done with the reading, he stood up, he said, are you a minister? And I said, no, but I, I've, I've played a nun. <laughs> 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 because in, in theater, I had done a role as, uh, it's called Sister Mary Ignatius explains it all for you. And I played Sister Mary Ignatius. So I said, yeah, I've played a nun. He said, no, I, he said, I, I would have sworn you were a minister, by the way. You're, I, I want you for that role. So to me, that was, you know, that was, that was a very special moment that. Has that have been, uh, ghosting? Ghosting, yes, yes. Where you thank played, you played, uh, Pastor Atkins. Yes. And that was a director, uh, Kevin Alexander Boone, who also then cast me in, um, a host of sparrows that's that's now up on Amazon as well. But the the casting for that was a little different. It was kind of fun because uh, the role was a guy sitting in a car talking to his wife in the rain. And I couldn't make the auditions. I was traveling, I, I think, to the UK or something like that for a show, and I couldn't make it. And I said, well, look, can I just send you like a video audition for for it? And he said, yeah, I'd like to, like to have you do that. So I set up a camera, got myself uh, myself shot doing the role, and then I played around uh, with a video program, put myself into a car, and uh, put myself into a rainstorm at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so it really was a, a lot of fun, just just kind of playing with the tools of the, of the trade to uh, to do an audition, and he cast me in that role. And it's, it's, it's turned out really to be one of my favorite roles that I, that I've ever done. And in it, I play a hitman who's, uh, well, it's a long story, but 
it's it's just it was a fun role for me and i really enjoyed it i caught this one on youtube I, i'm not sure if it's up there anymore but it was at one point flesh of the living yes yes that's an interesting story too so that that was a fun one <laughs> the, the, yeah. the title the title drew me and i was like hmm i wonder what this is about let's see the movie <laughs> on that like well I'll, uh, if you have a minute i'll give you the whole story Go ahead. <laughs> uh, probably two years before that the director of that film and another person asked me to come down to richmond to do a film and it was a like a one-day shoot and on a weekend and it was a bar and I was a parole officer and drugged the drink of this woman and took her back to her hotel room where she beat me on the head with an iron. And I call that my Iron Man role. And uh, so I did the scene. And a year or so later, I hadn't seen anything of the film. And like two years later, uh, I I got in touch with the director and I said, you know, I, I, uh, I was wondering whatever happened to the film that, you know, I'd shot for. Because I'm going to be down in Richmond, uh, where we'd shot previously for another event. And, um, I was just wondering if there was anything else you needed from me to help finish out that, that film. And he said, Oh, no. He said, I really apologize. But, uh, part of the film got lost and destroyed and the, the partnership I had with the other guy broke up. So, uh, we, we never completed the film. We, we didn't, we didn't continue shooting. He said, but if you're going to be down in Richmond on that particular day, he said, we are going to be shooting and I would love to have you if you could come out for a few hours. And I said, um, let me see if I can get away and do that because I, I had to do uh, a paranormal investigation of a house that evening and had a radio program uh, the previous evening and we were like throwing out the first pitch for the Richmond Flying Squirrels baseball team. I lead a very exciting life, as you may gather. And uh, we we go out to the woods, and uh, he says, okay, now we need to put you in a helicopter, so we're going to do the green screening. I said, right out here, I don't see a helicopter. He said, no, we'll take care of that. So along the side of a van, they, they put uh, a green cloth, green screen, and I sat in front of that and went through the lines and did the role of the helicopter news reporter. And there was a certain amount of ad-libbing along with that. And then, uh, you know, later they were able to turn that into the, the sights and sounds of a helicopter. And uh, the the director had also previously worked with the police department. So we're in this cul-de-sac out in the middle of the woods. And all these people are dressed up, getting into makeup as zombies. And the police car kind of slowly rolls by. And uh, the director goes over and talks to him and kind of nods in the police car, rolls away again. You know, just checking on things, just checking on things. So we're doing some more shooting. And about an hour later, police car comes by again. And this time he's delivering pizzas to us. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, I mean, protect and serve. I know, but, you know, he was a good friend of the director because the, the director had worked with the police department before and uh, was on really good terms. And, and it was just it was just a real nice touch of uh, local people supporting, again, independent filmmaking. One other quick thing about that, we had the scene where he said, now we had this really huge smoke bomb. And uh, when we get everybody in position, we're going to we only have the one now. So we're going to have to work and work, rehearse, rehearse. Position, position, you know, blocking, make sure everybody's in the right place at the right time before we let this off because we want to get it all on camera. So we, we rehearse, we walk through the scene several times, like me coming out of the woods and all the zombies are coming up after me. And he calls the police department to tell them now, be, be aware, you're going to see a lot of smoke. I mean, a lot of smoke coming out of the woods. And it's just a smoke bomb we're setting off on the road. There's no fire. There's no problem. Everything's going to be cool. Okay. So, man, we're ready for this huge event and effect. And when we get into position and we say, okay, action. And then everybody starts moving and they set off this big smoke bomb and the wind just goes. And in about two seconds, 
the wind blew it all away. Oh, no. There's no backup. Let's just keep acting. Let's just keep going. So it was, it was, it was kind of fun. Uh, I, uh, to me, it was one of those special moments of what independent filmmaking is really, really like. You, you use what you have, the resources and the people you have. You try to take care of the people you have and you try to have fun with it. And you try to make an enjoyable product that you can look back on and say, you know, I, I, that was fun. And all these other people, they had a good time too. And I hope the audience will enjoy it as well. Now, you just unloaded a lot of information right there. But there's one thing I want to touch back on. You do okay. paranormal house investigations? That was my first um, time doing it because the guys who uh, brought me in originally to Richmond were RIP, Richmond Investigators of the Paranormal. And uh, they're fans of uh, uh, Helicopter Zombie and uh, wanted to do a radio interview. And, and they're the ones who got me in to throw out the first pitch with the flying squirrels and such. And they said, okay, then, then uh, next night what we'll do is uh, an investigation of this uh, plantation home. And I didn't really... I'm a little creeped out by it personally because uh, I, I lived in San Antonio for a period of time and and I lived in an apartment that uh, was haunted. And I won't get into that at this point just because it's it's a complex story and I'm actually writing a, writing a piece about it. But uh, we went into, I think it was Weston Plantation perhaps. We went in and did some investigations and I felt some, I felt, kind of creepy in a couple of the rooms. I really did. You know, where your skin kind of crawls and you get hair on the back of your neck going up. And they had the, the four docents who were there who would normally give tours. And I said, no, let me ask you guys. This is open as a tourist attraction and people come in through the day, but it's also got a reputation as, as a haunted house. What do you What do you think about it since you were here? You, you're, you're here all the time. And one woman just flat out said, there's a room upstairs I will never, ever go into again. And another woman said, well, I was here and I heard these kids yelling and running and the footsteps coming down the stairs, the wooden stairs. And I came out. There was nothing. There was nobody. Um, they talked about a woman who was uh, they'd hired for the housekeeping staff who came downstairs and said, I quit. <laughs> he said, what? He said, yeah, that woman upstairs doesn't want me here, and I'm not going to stay where I'm not wanted. <laughs> okay. Well, so I, I think that they had some true experiences in that location. There, there's one movie I can't find anywhere, and that's partially because even IMDb screws it up. Uh, Dead Island. Ah, interesting story. Their, their trailer <laughs> for the movie is the game. And it's like, no, that's the game. I've played the game. That is not that movie. And I can't find the movie anymore. So could you tell me about the movie, please? Sure. Uh, Josh Davidson was, uh, I think he might have been working with Chris Kairos also, and, and asked me to do a role in the film they were making called Dead Island. Now, the island is with a little I because the entire film was going to be shot on iPhones. It was uh, through the eyes of this brother and sister who were in high school, and they were kind of recording their lives and adventures through iPhones. So the entire movie was being shot on iPhones. And they went to this high school on an island, and it was called Dead Island. So they got the film pretty much together, getting ready to release it and promote it, video game came out called Dead Island, completely out of the blue, completely unrelated to the movie. So a dispute arose over the use of the words and the name Dead Island. And as a result, the video game was out there and claimed it had all rights to the name. And uh, a battle had gone on for quite some time. And at this point, I'm still not sure of the final resolution. Explain why I can't find it anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's another thing that you know a lot of people don't understand. Even though uh, 
people might be working on 10 different movies. Not all of them are actually released or finalized, or for one reason or another, they might be held up. There's uh, Night of the Living Dead Genesis that I'd shot, what, seven or eight years ago. It still has not come out, whether that's a conflict with the name Night of the Living Dead, or whether it's a matter of um, finalizing some other aspects, or footage was lost and had to be restored. I don't get the explanations or, or know why films that or that you know that we might have worked on are not really out at this point. But uh again, you can see a wide variety of circumstances. You can work on things and they may never hit the big screen. Well, I think it's time we peel the lid off this thing. Let's talk okay. about the uh nineteen seventy eight classic Dawn of the Dead. I've heard that. That's one of my favorite movies. Well, yeah. I hope so. Uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, in earlier set of episodes that I did, and you, you want to talk about coming for full circle, I did, it was a two-part episode, and the titles are Romero, Reanimated and Remade. I compared uh, Night of the Living Dead and uh, Dawn of the Dead originals and remakes. Mm-hmm. And when we got to Dawn of the Dead, you are my favorite zombie. Ah, and well, thank here you. we I'm are honored. now. I'm interviewing you on the same show. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm still around. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was just, when I saw you come across on Facebook, I was like, no way. You know, this this can't be the, you know, same, can't be the same guy. And I'm looking, I'm like, it is the same guy. I've got to interview this guy. Hmm. You know, this, this, this has to happen, you know, uh, because in, especially in like the earlier films, when they put the amount of work they would put into like the up close zombies was phenomenal. Yes. And so they wanted them to be seen, wanted you guys to be, you know, memorable and of all the ones from Dawn of the Dead, I can remember there was you and the guy with the gun who somehow made it through the whole movie after they got to the mall. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and your scene was just, I mean, it was brilliant. Just, you get this guy, just comes walking by, you know, just walking towards the pilot. Just, uh, <laughs> and then, whack, and you're oblivious to it until thud. You know, I mean, it was <laughs> it was great. Well, and, thank you, thank you. I mean, from the like the acting and the special effects and all of that. It's, obviously, it's a scene I won't forget for a very long time because, I mean, it's. It's a kill you won't you don't think about because you're used to thinking you know okay how do you take out a zombie okay well you shoot him you'll take him out with a you know obviously with a blade but with a helicopter blade mm-hmm. you know that that, that wasn't uh, something you thought about did they give you any sort of backstory as to how that kill came about um. Not as such. I will. I will tell you this: that um, a couple people have approached me about doing something more with the backstory about that character, the helicopter zombie. Uh, one wants to do a film, and another is doing a, a writing project. One in the UK and one in uh, in the US. Uh, so I can't really really discuss too much about that aspect at this point. But what I will say is that when George Romero talked to Tom Savini about you know, doing the makeup and effects for Dawn, Tom says uh, his his question was, Tom, how many ways can you think of to kill people? <laughs> and Tom said, oh, maybe a hundred or so. And he said, okay, all right, that's good. Let, let's, let's do it, pretty much. When I ran into Tom Savini, uh, as I said, I'd worked with him in college. I'd gone to school with him. We both worked in an alternative theater group on campus. And after college, we both went off to the Army. Uh, in Vietnam. He went off as a uh, combat photographer, and I went off as a combat medic. Not that I ever ran into him over there, but a couple years later, we, we, you know, we'd had that shared experience as well. 
I found myself back in Pittsburgh. I'm not originally from there, but I'd lived there for, for a number of years. So I found myself back in Pittsburgh and I ran into Tom and he said, uh, Jim, I've got this great role for you. George Romero, who did Night of the Living Dead, is working on this film now called Dawn of the Dead. And um, I, I think he'd be great for this role. So, I, I, you know, I've worked with Tom. I put a lot of trust into him. And I went over to his house where in the basement. Had, he had his workshop and did, got my head cast, uh, got the makeup and the prosthetics all together. And then a couple of weeks later, I was on set. And so in those intervening times, I was working in theater. So I was on the road. I was doing a lot of stuff. I was on a literally a pretty tight schedule. So I was glad that I had the time. But I didn't associate with anybody else involved with the movie during that time. So it was pretty much just you and Tom against mm-hmm. the world. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. So I show up on set. I don't know who anybody is. And uh, I said, oh, well, they said, well, there's George Romero. He's the director. Okay, cool, cool. Um, they said, no, just stay out of the camera until it's your turn. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I, I said, well, Tom, um, I, I have a question in terms of what these zombies are. Do they, do they talk? Do they walk in any particular way? I mean, if you've seen the whole movie, they all kind of look a certain way, but I had no idea. I'm just coming to it fresh. And I said, well, he said, well, no, I don't, don't really talk, but you know, whatever you want to do, you know, you can do just, you know, be your own zombie. Well, that's all it took for me. So when I was working in theater, like we would keep seven plays in repertory. That means at any given day, we could do any one of seven plays or maybe a couple different ones in a day. And you don't stop and you don't say, okay, let's stop and let's figure this out and let's reshoot. You just continue to go. So you have to put a certain amount of energy into your work as a, as a stage actor. And it's the same amount that it carried over into the uh, into the film work. There is no stopping. There is no going back. You just are going to do the best you possibly can, and you're going to get it done. See it all the way through to the end, and don't expect that there's you know ignore any interruptions and just keep doing. You know, stay focused, and bring to that role whatever elements you can that speak to you of being a zombie. Well, who do you know of as a zombie? Well, there's kind of Frankenstein. He moves sort of stiffly, angularly, almost robotically in some ways. Um, Some of the other zombie films I may have seen in the past, there wasn't really a lot of knowledge or screen time about zombies. I say at that point, Romero was still kind of making it up as he went. He was redefining. That's exactly it. He had Night of the Living Dead before that and not much else that people were, you know, as broadly aware of. So whatever characteristics I could put into it, that's what I put into it. And, uh, and the focus and the concentration. And uh, we did everything in one take. That was all one take? Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. I mean, there were different camera angles coming out from the plane, from under the plane wing and walking across the field, the long shot. But then up on the boxes, all of that was one shot. So, How did they do the uh, makeup? The uh, effect? Yeah, the effect. Well. With the head casting, Tom built a little extra onto the top, and that top then uh, think of it as a little platter or like a like a little uh, uh, individual pizza, if you would, that was then cut into chunks. I mean, it had the hair embedded in it and everything, cut into chunks and then threaded together with monofilament line, clear fishing line, but. Walking, it was all, it looked like it was all one piece and part of the hair. From uh, stepping up on the boxes then, at the given cue, they said, you know, and it really had to be a matter of timing. So instead of George actually directing the scene as much, he let Tom pretty much carry over uh, the direction that needed to be done for those effects. Because Tom is the one who developed and invented the effects, and he knew how the timing had to go with them. So George would just say, you know, Tom, let's make it happen. And Tom was one of the two guys behind the boxes who had the pumps, hand pumps, with the artificial blood in them. So behind my neck, or actually on the back of my neck, I should say, and then down my back, down my trouser legs, were the two plastic tubes, which were then connected to 
the uh, the hand pumps with the blood in them. So at the given cue, somebody off camera runs with a piece of monofilament line invisible to the camera attached to the top of my head. When that comes off, that's when I get the shock look. That's when they start pumping. And then the blood comes up in two places over the forehead because, again, there were two pumps. And as they pump, of course, you get this sort of pulsation effect. It's subtle, but the detail of the practical effect is so perfect in my mind that you can blow it up and, and look at it in, 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 you know, high def, 4D, whatever. And that, that thing looks good. I mean, <laughs> see, I, I prefer practical effects over a lot of the, uh, digital special effects. So it, 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 uh, you know, I picked myself up and, um, you know, do we need to do that again? They looked at the footage. George is very pleased. He said, Oh, that was great. That was great. Let next. He said, we don't have to reshoot or anything there. Let's, let's move on. So I was hungry and I went to get a, a bit of, a bit of food from the craft wagon. And then uh, that's where Tom shot a picture of me all dripping in blood, eating a piece of pumpkin pie and some chips. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's still one of my favorite photos from, uh, from that day. And I hadn't even seen that until a couple of years ago. Tom uh, was asked to do an article, I think, on the 35th reunion of Dawn or anniversary of Dawn of the Dead on how the helicopter zombie effect was done. So he wrote this article for Gorezone magazine and used a couple of photos from his collection. And that happened to be one of them. And I said, Tom, I just love that picture. And so he let me get a copy of it. And uh, it's, it's just a, a real, uh, real fun memory of that time, too. Well, I can imagine. I mean, you helped. I mean, you were part of what started the zombie craze. And you're still, I mean, you're still in the zombie trenches. And, I mean, well, that, that says a lot now I can move slower. Now I can move as slowly as a zombie. <laughs> I don't, I, if somebody would say, hey, I got this role for you. I said, first of all, I do not do any running. I'm not climbing anything. I'm not a running zombie. I am not a running zombie at all, no. You got to start at the, you know, pretty much the beginning of the zombie renaissance and are still, I mean, you're still doing it. That, well, there were a couple of roles, uh, a couple of roles we were going to work on this year and those films have been canceled. We had a film premiere for a, a film we finished up last year called Remnants. And I think the premiere of that has been moved to July. That's for, you know, for, uh, cast and crew. Here's hoping. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're keeping our fingers crossed. And that, that's kind of a fun, that's more on the paranormal side too. And it's, I haven't done one quite like that, but it, it was a fun role and I enjoyed, uh, channeling that as well. <laughs> but, but you know, when I, I think about things like the creature from the Black Lagoon, he's an iconic figure. And I think about Bella Lugosi, um, who all we you know, man, that's, that's Dracula. That is Dracula. That's, that's the classic role of Dracula. Or, uh, Boris Karloff or Vincent Price. You know, they had unique roles and characters. And it wasn't like they were trying to copy somebody else. It's just something that fans and, and, and the world decided that's a pretty cool look. That's who that, that's what Frankenstein looks like. That's what, that's what a vampire looks like. And so for the helicopter zombie, I'm not saying I'm in the same category as any of those, uh, you know, giants of, of, um, the early horror cinema, but to have an iconic type character, I mean, the, the, uh, the helicopter zombie role has been called one of the top five zombie deaths of all times. And to me, that's pretty spectacular. Uh, and it's one of the top 100 uh, moments in horror movie history. Now, as as time goes on, of course, more movies are made and more evaluations and judgments are made about what's good and what's not 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 as good and what's even better now and how it, why it's better. But for this time being, to be one of those five top zombie deaths, a lot of people don't even know horror movies and what's that. But for anybody in the horror community, and I got a lot of friends, uh, it's really pretty cool. It really is, and. It's brought me a tremendous amount of joy. 
to be able to meet with the fans who made the movies possible. And all you had to do was lose your head. Yeah, lose my head for it. I gave my all. You can't let it go to your head. If it would have, it would have come right out. <laughs> <laughs> now, none of us knew at the time we were making it that it was going to become the classic and worldwide favorite that it has. And literally, it's been translated into, I don't know how many languages, but uh, I've done conventions in Europe, uh, in, in Germany, in the UK, you know, several times. And the fans there are absolutely rabid about, still, Dawn of the Dead and all the Romero films. So he he is truly a classic director. He truly has a legacy. But one of the other things about George is that he left behind a family of, of friends and family uh, and fans who get together to watch his works, to discuss them, and have, in their own ways, become smaller versions of, you know, clusters of family, outreaches of his being. And to me, that's that's quite a legacy. Oh, I agree. Uh, I mean, you think of the modern zombie movement. It wouldn't be what it is without Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and everything that Romero put into it. You know, you wouldn't have the Walking Dead phenomenon. You wouldn't have most of what we have today without Romero's contributions to the genre. Well, and you also have Tom Savini, too, who in his own right, is, you know, uh, the word genius is kind of loosely used, but in Tom's... He's definitely a mad genius. Yeah. In his energetic way, in his uh, insightful and creative and inventive way, he has paved um, the way for a lot of different types of effects. Greg Nicotero, who works, you know, as executive producer for The Living Dead, or excuse me, The Walking Dead, used to work with Tom. Yeah. And that's why I think you get some of those same kinds of influences and in how the zombies act or deteriorate. And they evolve on their own at this point. And I think that's, a, you know, a tribute to Greg picking up on where Tom was and where George was and, and being able to go out, pick up from there and say, now what, what would the next thing be 20 years later or 10 years later after these people have um, been infected with this plague or affected by the comet or the the wild government experiment gone wrong, whatever it might be. Uh, so to me, that's one of the one of the uh, fun parts about watching The Walking Dead. It's a continuation. And um, Jeremy Ambler, who was one of the walkers in The Walking Dead, he and I had done a couple of conventions where we would do a panel on comparing the zombies of George Romero's time with the walking dead zombies and the training or the instructions they got on how to be zombies. And, you know, it was really, it's just been a fascinating time. Obviously you can tell, I love talking with folks about this and oh, I'm uh, glad you do. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it, to me, it's, it's still fascinating and I'm still a fanboy for the whole horror genre. And, uh, I still continue to admire the, the classic ones. I had the, the the pleasure of meeting uh, Sarah Karloff, Boris Karloff's daughter, and uh, Victoria Price, um, Vincent Price's daughter, at a at a show in Germany. And you know, we 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 stayed in touch, and it, it just to me, being able to have that continuity of those uh, classic epic stars who who really paved the way for us all set the stage for what horror could be and still good entertaining movies well and you know touching back on tom he's such an icon for aspiring uh effects artists and he's been a part of so many franchises that i mean his name goes hand in hand with effects and like makeup mastery Yes. He created a number of effects. Uh, now you have a lot of new materials and ways to do things easier and quicker. Last year, for example, there's a, uh, a show, um, Living Dead Weekend, which is done at the Monroeville Mall by Kevin Christ, who has the uh, Living Dead Museum in, in, in Pittsburgh area. And at that show, they asked if I could do, uh, if they would be able to do a recreation of the makeup for Helicopter Zombie 
on stage. And I thought about it and I said, well, like, who would be doing this? Because I have to tell you, Paul, I don't like makeup. (laughs) (laughs) And some of it, some of the things that stick to your skin can stick, really stick to your skin and cause irritation and uh, burning. And at least a lot of the earlier products did. And again, with, with the casting of the head and the plaster and so forth and the alginate, there are a lot of steps involved in it. So for that, they said, well, it would be, uh, Jerry Gurgley and, and his girlfriend, uh, do you know Jerry? I said, yeah, I've worked with Jerry. Jerry is the chief instructor for Tom Savini's makeup school, the Douglas School of Makeup and Effects. And I've worked with him in another film, 1224, and he, stuck arrows in my chest which was fun and uh I, yeah i trusted him but uh they were they were saying okay uh you know they'll get they'll get in touch with you so uh just a couple of weeks before the show i'm thinking man this is this going to happen because it took so long to do the makeup i get this call from jerry and he says jim um you know we, we've been asked if we would do the makeup for you and uh uh, if everything's agreeable, we'd like to like to work with you. And I said, sure, that'd be great. I'd love to work with you. He said, well, can you uh, stop over? We'd like to do a head cast. And I said, Jerry, I'm not in Pittsburgh. I'm like four and a half hours away. I can't be driving over there. I'm in the middle of things right now. He said, well, okay. Um, do you have a tape measure? I said, yeah. He said, okay, I need you to go like from ear to ear, cross around your head this way, you know, take all the dimensions. He said, we'll work on it here. Okay. And that's the last I heard until about two days before the show itself. And Jerry and uh, Jen, his girl, friend, came to my hotel room in Monroeville the day before the show opened, two days before the effect was going to be ta- be done on stage. And they tried on the appliances that they created just from those dimensions and looking at the previous makeup job. And it fit perfectly. Like a hand and glove. There was no sticky adhesive. There was nothing. It was brilliant. I just felt such a rush of relief that I didn't have to get trapped inside a a plaster cast over my whole head for, you know, half an hour breathing through a straw. Talk about claustrophobia. So we'd go up on stage and, uh, you know, in front of everybody, we, the makeup went on. The team, the team was great. I just sat there. They connected the blood tubes. And uh, Tom Savini himself pulled the top piece off at the right moment. Blood came shooting out, and fans were on their feet. It was, it was a super, super moment. But I, I mentioned that just because of the difference in what it took. You were talking about the, the type of materials that were available and the techniques and how easy it was for Jerry to put that together. I don't know how long that they actually worked on it, but compared to the time I was involved sitting in a chair with Tom, you know, some years earlier, but Tom developed a lot of materials and techniques. So yeah, I would, I would definitely call that genius. Oh, most definitely. Well, as fun as this has been, I think you and I could uh, ramble for hours about the uh, differences in horror and everything. Uh, do you have any the upcoming... joys of being a zombie? <laughs> yes. Do you have any upcoming projects? Pandemic depending. Well, again, the, um, Remnants will be premiering, hopefully, and that's a paranormal-style film that uh, we shot, and it should be premiering for cast and crew in July, and that means there may be still a few touch-ups, but pretty much that's together. I guess I really can't talk too much about any any of the other projects. Uh, one of the things listed was Nightmare City, and that's a project that Tom was going to, to do, Tom Savini. And they were working literally for a couple of years on uh, both getting the funding together for it and the more funding, the more effects, the more people, you know, the greater spectacle you can make with it. But what happened was uh, they finally decided on the location and, and got things in place. And the location was Puerto Rico. And this hurricane ripped the island apart. So I think they've been you know, putting that one as a film on the back burner. So I'm not, I'm not sure if that's going to be made at this point. That's a shame. Um, but yeah. Yeah. But again, that's the sort of thing that can happen with films. And that's why you see some maybe pending and some uh, maybe in the works, but you may or may not see them. 
where can your fans uh, find you? I know you have a website. Yeah, I am on Facebook as Jim Crutt, K-R-U-T. And uh, my website is, if you think of the helicopter zombie, it's Hella Zombie. I tried to make it shorter. H-E-L-I-Z-O-M-B-I-E, hellazombie.com. And on there, I used to have my appearances, although uh, there haven't been any this year <laughs> for conventions. Uh, but, you know, I have my other uh, uh, past um, appearance locations, uh, my line of uh, T-shirts, hoodies, tanks, uh, hand-knit dolls that a gal in the U.K. makes for me, uh, some some um, some fun facts and things like that. So I think, uh, you know, if anybody's interested, they're, they're certainly welcome to go check it out, hellozombie.com. And those will be posted in the episode descriptions. You know where to find him. You can find me and other great podcasts at electronicmediacollective.com or on Twitter at the handle Moose Media Inc. Jim, I want to thank you for uh, yeah. <laughs> chatting with me today. It's been a blast. And like I said, we could do this all day because, you know, we, we, we both seem to have the same passion for this uh, type of thing. So It truly is. Mm-hmm. Maybe in the future we'll get you on again and do a part two. If I'm still around, uh, put me down for it, sure. It, it was a pleasure having you on the episode, and just want to thank you for popping in and chatting with us today. And well, thank you, Paul. It's, it's a it was a pleasure. It's a, it's a nice opportunity just to keep you know. I sometimes think that a lot of the legacy of uh, what goes into filmmaking and the history of it can get lost unless people have an opportunity to tell their stories. And so I really appreciate your giving me an opportunity to help share some of those experiences and to tell some of that, what I would now consider almost history. You're welcome. And until next time, Horror Hounds, mash on. This has been Moose's Monster Bash. Come back for more chills and thrills if you dare. <laughs>